Welcome to the Jack Daniels Show, a new show every Tuesday. Giving you a shot of unconventional opinion. No filter. No nonsense. No political correctness. Tune in for real talk. Um, how do we want to start this podcast off? I don't know. No, you can do it. No, I can't because I'm still waiting for the caffeine to hit. As we speak, right, you're, you're trying to, I suppose, stream your con- like consciousness to some degree. Right, right. You're trying to filter it out and, and pick the relevant parts and turn it into some understandable narrative that the other person can understand. <laughs> but it's not that easy to do that. Yeah, which is why I have a lot of respect for stand-up comedians. Like, bro, they are like I can't, masters I can't at that. They're like, they're crowd psychologists. That's what they are. You know what? I think, I think we need to do some stand-up com- like comedy. I don't know, bro. It's too, too scary for me. Oh, come on. You'd be right. You know, I've seen it fail once. Really? Yeah, it was um, it was like you want to stab you, actually. Okay, tell me the story. Um, Neil Kohaka was coming in. This is back in 2016. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Were you there? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I was there. I didn't even know you then, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> I only probably knew you in the first semester of 2016. But yeah, it was it was that, and there were a couple of acts acts that came before him, and one of them was this dude, and he wasn't funny, <laughs> and he kept making jokes, but there was something just ever so slightly off about the comedic timing, and all these jokes were falling flat, and people weren't laughing, and I'm like, that looks horrendous. I feel sorry <laughs> for the guy. I don't ever want to be in that position. Everyone felt sorry for the guy, but they didn't make him funny. <laughs> you can't, there's no such thing as pity laughter. That's the thing. I mean, this is why you kind of like, don't do your first rodeo on such a big stage. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah maybe. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, there's so many like open mics where it's like five minute sets, mm. you know, in a bar that no one will recognize you ever again. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, you, you have these, I suppose, courses of stand-up comedy where, you know, you bring your friends and family along, you know, if it flops, it flops. It's a good memory. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that. The difference between, I think, public speaking and, you know, being a comedian, well, there are a lot of differences, but one of them, I think, is you can be kind to a public speaker um, if you pity them. You can say, oh, you did a good job. Give them a nice pat on the back. You can clap. You can, you can give them pity claps. You can give them pity compliments. That's true. No one pity laughs. <laughs> it's not a thing. Well, you, you, um, know, you know what it is? It's expectation. Like you go to a comedy show expecting to have a good time. Yes, no, that's true. But no, but that usually helps you because people are not there to see you fail right Mm. they don't want you to fail they very much want you to succeed because they want to laugh right it's more so that people don't make themselves laugh it's not a thing like fake laughs on yeah it's just (laughs) disingenuous no one does it unless you're an actor like who fake laughs like it's painful to fake laugh i don't even think an actor can fake laugh yeah it's, it's 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 not that it's not that easy like who's bothered to fake laugh it'll just look inauthentic as hell no one wants to do that so um, people can fake clap. It's very easy. Oh yeah, someone's people giving can, a People can fake cheer. People like, can fake cheer. You know, so there's if there's this nervous guy, you feel sorry for him, you pity him, and he's up there on stage delivering a speech. You can clap. You can go woo. You can do anything. You can fake those things. They're easy to fake. Mm-hmm. You can't. You can't. It's not like you can't. It's more like people just don't fake laugh. And so there's a certain brutality, brutal honesty associated with the comedic act that's not necessarily there with public speaking to the same degree. But, and people are already terrified of public speaking, by the way. Oh yeah. Like apparently it's like the number one fear. I'm I'm not surprised. Um, I reckon we should all do more public speaking. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand it, Um, but then I've had, you know, quite a lot of practice doing it, but I feel like stand-up comedy is that fear intensified. I definitely agree, right? Because there is this pressure um, to make people laugh. You, you know, I, I think most, you know, stand-up comedians, they try and get a crowd going in the first few seconds, right? Like they want a, a quick win, like a quick laughter. 
just so you know the crowd can kind of like almost like sit back in a sigh of relief knowing that you know this person's funny right like yeah that's yeah. what the first laugh is for yeah yeah that's right like as i said people are not there to not laugh <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to see you fail and they want to laugh so yeah but can you be like so bad at comedy that people will laugh at you yeah you can you, you definitely can but but that's not i feel like you can tell the difference and you have to be pretty bad in order to be funny if that makes yeah. any sense like you have, yeah. to be, you have to be really bad like like um, it has to be almost to the point of ridiculousness it's just yeah. like why are you there yeah that's right that's right and in that case can, can will people laugh yeah they might laugh actually that might even be better so it might be better to be absolutely horrendous and awful um, to the extent that people laugh at you because then at least people are laughing. I mean, isn't that the purpose of like any jokes? Sure, sure. But it's just, I feel like it's most of the time that's not what happens. Most of the time the joke just falls flat and people are like... Yeah, dude, have you, have you seen like on... Um, um, what's that show again? Like, um, you know the one with Simon Cow- Cowell or whatever? Like, um, Brenda's Got Down. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. So so there was this this woman right she was just like um are you guys all left like you know instead of like all right okay like, it's, it's so bad like yeah, okay, people you, laughed because of how bad it was no no like it was like crickets yeah 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 that's right that's like right. like okay you, you know a joke is really bad when you have to explain it yes um i once heard this great analogy jokes are like frogs um you can dissect them and explain them but they don't survive the procedure <laughs> That's which, true. which is true i agree um, yeah so i think i think it's rare for someone to be so awful that they're funny hmm. yeah so okay so so i think i think we both agree that comedy is like the holy grail of communication it's like you got to be so, so masterful at it yeah like all it takes is a small error in comedic timing and your joke just doesn't take yeah like like i actually don't understand like what even is comedic timing like i don't know you just feel it you just feel it yeah like Like, i i I gained that through a bit of experience as well like some people do have an intuition for it but you can get better at it for me i used to like find these offensive jokes on the internet and tell them to people at school (laughs) <laughs> and what I found was some of them made people laugh, some of them, some of them didn't, and those same jokes that didn't in a different setting did. I was like, "What's going on?" And and the reason why was the delivery. The delivery is everything. Mm. It has to be timed perfectly, um, and and set in appropriate context as well. So, and you can't. There aren't formulas for this stuff, and that annoys me. It would, wouldn't it? <laughs> um, and yeah, it, these days, um, if I'm in a sort of social context, yeah, like sometimes I'll make people laugh. The way it happens is just randomly, I get a feeling that if I if I say something like it will it will have an effect, and then I say that thing, and then people laugh. Yeah, look, um, look, I never get that feeling. <laughs> um it's just something pops into your head and you're like yeah maybe, maybe that was the moment just then like i made you laugh maybe it was <laughs> um but i feel like comedians can turn that off and on like it's so bizarre like they can they can make so it crazy. funny when they want to make it funny um such a superpower i find that fascinating yeah, I, do, do that. I, I want to study this like a bit more later when I've got more time. <laughs> yeah, dude, you're just scared of failing, man. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> 100%. I'm not ashamed to admit that. Um, I, I don't think I, I think I have pretty good comedic timing, but um, when you're up there on stage, it's different. It's not the same as when you just, because when you're just talking to people, like no one knows you can make a joke it's, it's very casual it's a matter there, of fact yeah, there, are no, there are no expectations right mm. it's just you you, you you find like some gap in the conversation you say something 
and then either people like don't respond it's the worst case scenario or they laugh um because and it's in, and, and that's fine because there's no expectation but suddenly when there's massive expectation there when you're meant to make them laugh i just feel like oh no no absolutely it's fear, fear of failure <laughs> so <laughs> but you know what even even with professional comedians it takes them months to come up with the routine yeah like 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 apparently you know they they test out all the jokes for like the big show at you know small country clubs you know mm. like mm. just small stand-up like open mics and and they pretty much a b test to gauge you know like these things to see how people react me. to it it takes them like six months to come up with a routine. Yeah. And, um, and then they recycle it like, like crazy. Like they just polish it. Yes. Yes. Um, so even people with a very good grasp of comedic timing and of what makes things, what makes things funny, even they need to test their jokes to make sure that one of them doesn't fall flat because sometimes they just do. Sometimes you think they're going to be funny and you say, and no one laughs. It's kind of insane how good Andrew Schultz is at responding to hecklers. He just makes things up on the spot. Like, you know, like most comedians, like, I don't know, you know, Russell Peters or something, they would, you know, try and make a routine and they just recycle it for years, right? And they wouldn't even really take on heckling. Okay, maybe like from from now and then, right? Every now and then they would do it. Um, and, you know, some would be witty, some won't. But then Andrew Schultz, the guy is just a, on another level. Like everything he says is just gold. It's because of his crowd work. Yeah, dude, his crowd work is second to none. He's amazing. Um, I, I don't know how he does it. I think he just he just gains energy from the group. He, he's just chatting with them, right? And then when something occurs to him, he just says it. But the things that occur to him just occur at such a high rate and they're of such high quality. It's crazy. The guy has a really impressive general knowledge. Like in, his, in, his, in. his knowledge on culture, you know, religion, history, politics is just insane. I, I've noticed that. I love it. Um, he, he does have a certain formula, like a, a very like, you know, basic one. He starts off with race. <laughs> because... Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. He makes fun of you first. Like he, yeah, he'll, he'll start off with, "What the hell are you? <laughs> what is that?" Yeah, yeah, like like you might be on wheelchair, and then he'll be like, "What is that?" Um, he goes for the low hanging fruit first of all, but it's just he's able to make that into something funny. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's it's something else. He's having a conversation with the crowd. That's what's happening. Like you know how you know I was just saying when I'm in a casual conversation with people occasionally things occur to me to say mm. and i say them and they're funny he's doing that with a crowd of people okay 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 i think that's the difference right like most comedians they try and incite hecklers but schultz basically just has a conversation i think that's the main difference yeah and i know he he also does have some pre-planned work like he releases mm. videos every now and then um I don't find them as good as they're funny. They're funny, but I just don't find them as good as his crowd work. Um, they're just when you watch those videos, it's like every half a second there's a joke. It's almost like this: the, the joke density is too high to be appreciated by more human beings. Maybe he's just too smart for his own good. <laughs> he's just too sophisticated. Every second there's a joke. Sometimes multiple jokes laid on top of each other. And it's like. You want to laugh, but it just happens so quickly, and you're like, "No, I need time, bro. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a genius. I need, I, I, I need to save this like, like some wine, and then just laugh about it, and then continue on to the next one." But no, in his, um, in his videos, it just goes boom, 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 boom. Yeah, it's just too packed. His monologues, yeah, it's too packed, because um, because he, he's because he's he's doing it to make himself laugh. <laughs> Oh, oh, are you talking about like those those monologues on YouTube? Monologues. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I agree. Like those are just just so dense. Whereas like, yeah, yeah like like there's just so many layers to it. Um, His but I do is better because he needs time to come up with the next thing. Yeah, so, I also think his routines are also fine, but it's just his monologues that's a bit too much. I've I haven't seen many of his routines. I need to see some of them. I'm sure they'll be hilarious. Um, 
yeah no comedians are something else i have a great respect for comedians oh yeah me too like who even thinks about like oh i just want to do comedy like that's just mad respect yeah nah yeah nah. i don't yeah i don't get it apparently that's like apparently that's how joe rogan identifies first and foremost not as a podcaster not even as a ufc commentator yeah he's a, he's a comedian as a comedian like i saw it as i saw i've seen his um comedian routines it's pretty good yeah it's yeah, great I, timing I, yeah i've seen some of them they're funny i think it's just because i don't know there's just there's something special about being a comedian you know like a lot of comedians become actors or well i, I think pod, like podcasting is like pretty new but a lot of comedians turn into actors and the reason why they're good actors is because they're just funny. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised by that. Like, I you mean, got Ken Jong, you got Jimmy O. Yang, you got like a couple others. I wouldn't be surprised if they're great podcasters as well, because they've got to be good at thinking on their feet, having yeah. good timing. They're probably good conversationalists. Hmm. I wonder if there's like a science to this. Like, not yet. <laughs> like, not yet? I reckon not yet, because podcasting is very new. Um, I mean, conversations aren't new, but you know what I mean. This yeah, but like, is, like, is what new. makes a conversation pleasant? Yeah. You mean is there science behind what makes a conversation pleasant? Yeah, as in, like, what makes it pleasant to listen to? To me, couldn't tell you. I bet you go research that, bud. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. Like, like, I feel like you know, part of it, it is practice. But then, you know, you need deliberate practice on it as well. Yeah, look, no one pops out of the room like that. People do have better intuitions than other people. Some people have very good intuitions. Um, I've got a mate of mine who, he's not a comedian. He doesn't even make jokes. But, like, not, not deliberately. He, he, I, I don't think he's ever said, okay, I want to make people laugh. And then make people laugh. He just naturally things he does and says and his timing it just makes people laugh mm-hmm. he's just a funny guy but when yeah, he tries like, to turn it on when he tries to turn it on it doesn't work yeah so, so, so you ask so some thinking. people some people are just naturally funny yeah he's just naturally funny he's just naturally, but the, the funny thing is you can't turn it on and off oh yeah like you like telling him to go up there to make a speech a funny speech he won't be able to do it it's, it's almost as if if you make him try it kind of like hinders his natural flow. Yes. Yeah. It ruins the magic. <laughs> um, so, so maybe what your mate should just do is, like you should tell your mate, um, just make a speech. Him to make a speech? Yeah. You know, like if you want him to be funny, right? Just tell him to make a speech. That's all you've got to do. Yeah, but he's not that good. Of, he's not that good at public speaking, actually, which is hilarious. Like he made the speech at his sister's wedding, and I thought, man, this is gonna be hilarious. This is gonna be so funny. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't funny. Um, but the, my my point is though, like some people do have better intuition than other people. But a comedian is somebody who takes probably decent intuition that he just came prepackaged with, and then he hones that, and then he intensifies that, and amplifies that, yeah. and then he becomes a comedian. I wonder how many times they get laughed off the stage or booed off the stage from the beginning. Because like you hear a lot of comedians starting off in New York City, right? In all those open mics. And and New York City is pretty ruthless, I'd say. There's like quite a high standard. Like, imagine how many times you would have been booed off when you were just a fledgling. Especially because there's something about not being confident that makes your jokes that would otherwise take fall flat. If someone goes up there and he does not look confident in his jokes, they will not work, which adds a different layer to the, to the issue, I think. You know, I was actually listening to a podcast episode of Joe Rogan and Jimmy O. Yang, right? And they were mentioning how they pretty much came out of the same... I think open mic bar or whatever it's called. And, you know, they, they have a strong, you know, recollection of one another because, you know, at the very beginning, 
you know, obviously they got booed off the stage, right? It's pretty normal. But, you know, they were like one of the only guys um, to be able to, I suppose, toughen it out, right? Like mm. most people mm. get booed on the stage, never you know, do comic ever again. It doesn't surprise me that they're successful. Like maybe the thing about, you know, these successful comedians is that just because they cockroaches. Well, yeah, well, because they failed so many times, they stopped fearing failure. Mm. Like people, some people say, I don't fear failure when what they really mean is, you know, I'm, I'm more risk loving than the average population, mm. which is, but that's not the same thing as not fearing failure. Like these guys are as close to not fearing failure as you can get. Yeah. Maybe so. And maybe that's what made them successful because they were able to take risks that mm. other people just couldn't take. They were able to put themselves out there in a way that other people just couldn't do. And it reminds me of um, like when we, were in, when we were in Israel a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. we found out it's like Tel Aviv is the startup city. Yeah. You know, there's so many startups. Um, and it's like, well, why Tel Aviv of all places? Like, why is that such a hub for startups? It's like number two, number three in the world after some cities in America. And the answer seems to be because of national service. National hmm. service for all men and women, two years for women, three years for men. And they're not just sitting in a base somewhere safe. They are always near potential conflict all the time, dealing with hostiles, sometimes engaging in actual conflict, actual battle. And that makes them have a different perspective of risk. Hmm they're able to take risks more and more risks than ordinary people would otherwise take because of their training and because of what they've experienced. So I think um, it's sort of similar to the comedian thing where, because they had to go through the ring and they had to go through New York city. They couldn't, they couldn't be afraid of failure. They had to kill that part of themselves. So, I think so, that's also true hmm. with national service in Israel. Yeah. I, I do think, you know, being faced with, Kind of like your mortality does change a lot of things. You know? I think so. I think so. Maybe we should have national service in Australia. Maybe yeah. that will take okay. a startup nation. <laughs> okay. So, so, so basically, you know, you know, like the the conventional wisdom for startup founders, right? Is you got to be not afraid of failure. You, you pretty much got to be like almost seeking failure because that's how you, mm. I suppose, mm. you know gather information and reorientate yourself in a more accurate direction, right? That's more in line with, you know, how the world actually works. Mm. So, so maybe, you know, we'll actually become better founders if we do startup comedy, stand up comedy, because, you know, we kind of like increase our, sorry, lower our inhibition towards, you know, risk. Look, yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, but I do think that you have to be a fairly resilient kind of person in order to get through that kind of you know, training, so to speak. Mm. Because there's two things going on here. Yeah, sure, people like Joe Rogan, Jimmy O'Yang, they, they're being trained in, in, you know, in some sense to become successful, to not be failure, right? But... There's also a sense in which, you know, um, getting through like the people who are able to, well, the open mic is selecting people who are already wired for success. Right. So there's a selection bias there. There is a selection bias there. I'm not denying that it does do something, that open mic, it does do something, but not everybody can handle it. Not everybody can successfully go through that training, so to speak because it's just too hard. It's just too much. And mm. so there, there is a selection bias there for sure. Um, I don't think everyone's meant to be successful at uh, startups necessarily. Oh, I, I agree with that. No? Like, I, I think people always have a niche where they are inherently more geared up to success, you know, just right. because of their own, you know, personality and, you know, background right. for that. But I mean, startups, well, no. I mean, you know, there, there are some people who are just competent, right? They're just yeah. very competent at what they do at a particular niche. And 
then they're able to use that to perform well in the business world. Maybe they make a successful startup. Maybe they do well in the first time around. And, you know, that kind of path, sure, you can say that they didn't need to be super risk-loving or they didn't need to have destroyed the fear of failure. There are people who have not killed that part of themselves and have succeeded. Yeah, sure, that's true. But it's more that there's a sense in which if you kill that fear of failure, you're almost, you're almost guaranteed to succeed because you're going to get opportunities that nobody else is going to get. Right. You're going to put yourself out there in, in ways that other people just aren't willing to do. You're I mean, that, that's pretty that much what out. Gary Vee did. Yeah, sure. Um, and so is it possible to succeed while you still feel failure? Yeah, I'm sure. Some people have mm. done it probably. But the, the thing is, killing that part of yourself, getting rid of that feel of failure, almost makes, almost guarantees that you will succeed in some way. Dude, that's profound. Well, I think, I think that's just the way, the way things are in this world at the moment. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's funny, right? Like, the fear of failure is, okay, it, it's an evolutionary mechanism to protect ourselves, right? from hostile environments back in the days. But now it's kind of like this almost impediment to success, which is very ironic. Yes and no, right? Because even back in the day, you needed to have a balance, right? Mm. You, yeah, you need to have a certain kind of fear of failure, sure. But you also needed to be brave enough to fight, to hunt, etc. So that balance between you know, fearing reckless, stupid risks, but embracing, you know, important risks, embracing productive risks. I think that's always been there. So I'm not sure how much has changed. Maybe the balance has shifted a little bit. You know, maybe now you can take absurd risks in the business world and you're not about to be, you know, mauled by a lion or a bear. (laughs) It's a different environment. It's like a reputational risk. But yeah, yeah, there is that as well. So, I so I'm not sure much has changed in that regard. Back then, you know, you had the person who finds the balance, who they don't take stupid, reckless risks, but they do take, you know, constructive, productive risks. Um, and the, the the best the person who has that best balance. Um, there's a person most likely to succeed to get all the meat or to, <laughs> to, to plant all the fields. I don't know. Um, and, 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 and get all the chicks. Right. And I'm not sure much, much has changed today. The person has the right balance who takes the right risks, um, who, who's, who, who kills his fear of failure, except to the kind of risks that you really shouldn't be taking. <laughs> that person is the person who succeeds. So I, I think it's the same today. I think you had a bell curve, then you have a bell curve now. Yeah. Okay. I agree with that. So, okay. So what is kind of like stopping people from, I suppose, taking more productive risks? It's very simple. I think it's because I I think the answer to that question is the same reason why, you know, wage slavery exists. Right. (laughs) I mean, I I do use that term semi-ironically, but why is it that people will settle? Like sometimes quite smart people as well will settle, um, you know, for being an employee on decent earnings but not amazing earnings and just have a job and do it for 20 30 40 years why and the reason is because you can survive that way Mm. right it's like a the easy way it's It's a path of least resistance right it might it's not gonna might not be the most fulfilling or satisfying life right but you know you're going to make it. You know you're going to have your, your house, your 2.5 kids or whatever. You're going to have your average suburban life. It's better than uncertainty. And for a lot of people, it's better than uncertainty, even if they don't feel satisfied doing that. So I think, I think that's the reason why people do it. And, why, why, and uh, I think that's the, reason, that's the same reason why people don't take or struggle to take those kinds of risks because they know they don't need to do that in order to survive and have a family and whatever. I also think, you know, it's also because we often optimize for the short term as opposed to the long term. So, so for instance, right? Like 
I see a lot of people optimizing short term for selling to jobs that they don't necessarily enjoy because, you know, like, I mean, humans, like we mimic other people's behavior, right? Mm. And so if the people around us are all, I suppose, you know, their quote unquote definition of success is, you know, this certain, you know, status, certain, you know, um, you know, luxury goods, you know, being able to purchase a house, you know, certain amounts of, I don't know, wealth, um, et cetera, right? That kind of like unsettles a lot of people. And so, you know, they tend to use that as a benchmark. And so they optimize towards that. Um, even though, you know, deep down, they aren't really satisfied with, you know, their position. And, you know, I would argue that, you know, if you were to focus on the long-term, right? Um, like, yes, it might take longer to get there, but you're going to end up more satisfied, like firstly. But then also secondly, because you're very passionate about it, it's more likely that you're going to reach high levels of success, even though it's very delayed, right? Sure, sure. I mean, I mean that's the tales all this time, right? Mm. People optimizing for the now and not thinking about the future or the long term. Yeah. Humans have sort of always been like that. And very frequently, the most successful ones have been the long-term thinkers, even the ones who think beyond the now. And so, yeah, that's conventional wisdom, right? Yeah, but, but it's also hard to balance because, like, you know, there's also the need to stay present, right? Because, you know, everyone's mortality is, you know, inevitable. And so you don't know if you, you know, even have the time to grind it out. So how do you strike a balance between, you know, thinking the long term, but then also being conscious about staying in the present? I don't know. That's a good answer to that. <laughs> I think that's going to be different depending on people's circumstances. Like, like I reckon the optimal way is to look at it in like a barbell type of structure. So you should optimize for things like at this very moment. So let's suppose, you know, you want to spend time with friends, do it. But then you should also optimize for things that's very conducive to your long-term goals so like i don't know let's say you want to be a homeowner in 10 years or something like that then go and do that but also i think we should just cut out i suppose the things in the middle right it's either short-term hedonic satisfaction or just long-term benefits right yeah it kind of reminds you of nasim talib's investment advice where he says yeah he goes put like a certain amount of your earnings um, even most of your earnings in extremely safe investments and put like 10% in super risky investments. Oh, that's what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And what happens is, you know, your very safe investments will make some money most of the time, unless you're super unlucky. Um, you're slowly growing, growing, growing. Most of the time, that 10% that you put in super risky investments, that's an expense. Or at least you should count it in your head as an expense because you can oh, lose what, that most of the time. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. Yeah. And then one day things go belly up and that 10% explodes. And Dude, that's what happened this year for me. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I, I, look, dude, I like, uh, I wouldn't disclose how much I have in Tesla, but um, it basically quadrupled in, in my face. And, and then, nice. and then also square tripled in my face as well, which is uh, pretty awesome. Yeah. Nice. Nice. And, yeah. and then also uh, better on Zillow. So it's like this, uh, you, know, you know, like real estate's very illiquid market, right? Like it's very annoying to sell your houses. So mm. it, it's basically a tech enabled app that lets you sell your house pretty much with a click of a finger. Right. And so I was like, all right, this is probably like the future. Punt on it, doubled. Sure. And I think that's one thing that people struggle to understand, which is that those tail possibilities are always undervalued you know what it is it's because people don't understand exponential growth right it 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 has something to do with the fact that humans are somewhat risk averse they are Hmm. and so as a result you get this you know situation where we consistently and also by the way because we can't properly 
price rare events with like normal Bayesian reasoning. Why is that? Well, because they haven't happened enough for us to have a good updated prior or a mm. prior redistribution, right? So there's a, even if we were being completely neutral um, and not risk averse, then we would still have a situation where rare events um, are, we underestimate how often they happen. Like how rare are we talking about here? Even like one in a hundred. Like it's, right. not, okay. it's not super rare. It's rare enough to not really be able to consistently price it or to determine how often it happens. We think it's one in a hundred, but can, can we really tell the difference between one in a hundred and one in 500? No. Not unless we have a lot of data, right? Like a lot of data. Um, and so that's why in the market, um, and I think in life in general, you always, they always tend to underestimate the risks of rare events. Um, you know, they might call an event one in a thousand. How do they know that it's not one in 500 or one in 200? They just don't have enough data to make those conclusions. So how do you, how do reinsurance firms kind of like price these things then? Because reinsurance firms are the ones that deal with the tail risks that insurance firms do not want to take on. Well, they, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it's just because they, um, I don't know. That's a good question. Couldn't yeah. tell you. Like, like, okay. If you I would, know what it is. If I, was, if I was a reinsurance firm, I would just, you know, charge a fairly conservative premium. Yeah, no, no, no. That's that's absolutely it. There's there's like a right. massive risk premium. So, yeah, you know, even in the options market, right? If you see, you know, the very deep out of the money puts or calls, you'll see, you know, the premium associated with it compared to its intrinsic value is like like several fold. No one wants to sell it for like even double its intrinsic value. Like unless it's like being sold for, I don't know, like eight times its value. It's not just, it's not worth it. Right, right. So, you know, I, I, I suspect that's, that, that's what it is. Um, but what that means is that it's usually in your best interest to try to um, expose yourself to some of that upside, the tail mm. upside. I agree. And I guess, you know, human psyche works against that. But what it means is for that person who is able to overcome that and take those risks, that is a positive EV play. That is <laughs> right. That is that is good for them. To it's good for them to do that. And so, yeah, I fully agree. You know, if you if you need to get your conventional job, get your conventional job, right? But you should be trying to, especially when you have the time. When time is cheap for you, when you're young, you should be working on exposing yourself to that tail upside mm, whether I, that I means, agree with that yeah whether that it, means it's, you're so, making it's a so funny like gary v is like 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 to this guy you know he's like i'm working nine to five like where do i have the time to to work on the my business right or my side hustles and he's just like yeah what about five to nine or like nine like five to nine after work and before work <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah um and frankly, that's that's the advice I would give. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do think Gary probably, like he'll say things like, you can do everything wrong for the next 10 years and still be young. I appreciate that actually, because it makes people who might've otherwise given up, you know, try again. That's good yeah. as far as that goes. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that time gets more costly when you grow older. I, I do agree. And also, you know, if you haven't really... Don't waste your 20s. Yeah. Dude, that, that's so... That's such a good piece of advice. Like, um, do yeah. not 20, go gallivanting 20... into Europe for the next 10 years. You, you know what really... Getting laid me? and getting drunk and doing nothing. <laughs> you know what really annoys me? Um, it, it's people in the 20s that obviously hate their jobs, right? But, you know they're just stuck in a rat race where, you know, they just want to, I don't know, reach like manager or whatever, you know, like prestige status um, before they, I, I don't know, do whatever they actually want to do. Everyone, look, everyone makes different trade-offs. Yeah, that's true. Obviously what we're talking about today is we're trying to make the case that 
the, the proper trade-off or the most optimal trade-off for most people is to take more to take those kinds of risks that they might not usually take mm. to expose themselves to that tail upside to to do some ridiculous things or ridiculous ventures you know but some people aren't interested in making that trade-off you know they they, they know that they're smart diligent enough to get the job big four to grind their way into making a very sizable salary they know they can do that maybe they would be making you know much more if they expose themselves if they, if they took some risks that they you know if they um not take the path they've taken or the path of least resistance but they don't particularly care about that because what they, they know they can guarantee a good salary and they're happy with that so whatever you know if you if you if you want to make that trade-off go make that trade-off but you, you know what it is i think that the living you need we, we live in it's possible for a surprising percentage of people these good risks or you know these expose themselves to tail and really makes okay so so here's my thoughts right i think you know the premise of all of this right is being able to have a objective function like you need a goal in mind in order to optimize towards what you want right and so i think the problem here is that many people, I mean, including myself to some degree, right? Like we do not understand exactly what it is we actually value, right? Like a lot of the value is not really intrinsic. It's more external, right? And it's not things that we truly believe in. And so I think, you know, if we understand what it is we want, like, I mean, I mean, I'm more for, you know, someone, you know, wanting, you know, good family, like familiar relationships, you know, just getting married, you know, living a comfortable life with the kids and everything, right? Um, but I, I think, you know, it's important to recognize what exactly you want and so that you can, I suppose, construct a life around that. Like, I very much appreciate and respect, you know, the person that, that just goes, hey, you know, family's the most important thing to me. Um, career is probably second. I just need to make enough to support the family. And, you know, as long as I can live a, you know, happy family life, then, you know, I'm content with life. Like I actually respect those type of people. So yeah, like, you know, I don't think everyone needs to take a risk, but, you know, for, for someone that does want to be, you know, I suppose more, you know, successful in whatever, you know, quotation marks or definition that, you know, they might ascribe to themselves, then yeah, like taking on these terror risks is absolutely essential. Right. And I do think that the, these days there are, or there is like an entire class of individuals who are being siphoned off into academia or into big corporations they're making decent salaries, but that's really not where they should be. I do agree. And, and like a, a lot of it is they are being trapped into this game where, you know, there's other monetary, like other incentives other than money, right? So in academia, you have, you know, limited research positions. And when your whole bubble is, you know, circled around, um, you know, trying to obtain these publication spots and pump out research papers and just competing against super, super talented people. Like obviously, you know, PhD like researchers are very smart individuals. Um, you know, they just get trapped in this, this bubble of, you know, trying to like almost circle jerk for like, you know, something other than money. And I mean, in big corporations is the same, right? It's, you know, how far up the ladder can you go? Like everyone's trying to buy for a partner. Um, so, so I think like I actually read this really awesome uh, blog post that uh, you should read a bit later. Basically, it's this dude 
um, that was doing his PhD in physics at Stanford, I think. And he was just like throwing out his, his notes for the year and he's just like asking himself, why am I doing this? Like, what value is this? Um, and he's just like, he just kind of realized that he was being, you know, perpetuating this positive feedback loop where, you know, he wasn't really adding any tremendous value. Like, you know, like, like he basically just chucked away, you know, one year's of his work. And just like that, like, you know, in all those, you know, paper scrappings. And that's really bizarre. Cause like, you know, often in academia, you see, you know, people try and pump out, you know, research papers. And when you read it, it's honestly garbage because there's no real world application or value to it. But anyway, so, so the guy realized, you know, that he was in this bad feedback loop, got out of it, now works for SpaceX. It's a pretty cool story. Right. Well, on that, I look forward to the democratization of research away from, you know, the hands of academia. I think for a while now, academia has monopolized important kinds of research. Mm-hmm. And the issue is, I think they just do it so inefficiently. Um, you know, I mean, sure, like maybe it's good to have academia because they're able to research things that seem completely useless but might one day be super useful. Okay, sure. Yeah, like in an instance of machine learning. Right, right. Um, and there are there's a long list of things that appear useless but became super useful. Academia is well placed to study those things, but what people don't realize is the marginal utility of wasting money for really wealthy people or really wealthy corporations isn't very high. So they can undertake those kinds of research, that kind of research as well. And I think that the, one of the issues with academia is that they tend to be quite prejudiced against new ideas. They're meant to be generators of new ideas and that's true to some extent, but in technical fields, they can be surprisingly intransigent and, it's you, actually, and you have you have citation circles yes right it's, it's really hard to navigate it like it's so, just it's so opaque yes and so i think what people don't understand is peer review doesn't really work i mean it works in the long term i'm talking about generations right mm. a, a bad idea probably isn't going to survive several generations of peer review but it can it can survive a generation of peer review even though it's complete nonsense just because it's written by a respectable person um, that all the right people like. <laughs> it's right. It, people think that scientists are somehow able to be completely neutral and they're not. They're, they're normal human beings. And in fact, in some, sometimes they're more prejudiced than normal human beings. I know. Like, you, you know, you know, okay. So, so there was this guy that wrote a book. Um, he basically unearthed, I think, engineering principles and design concepts from the 1970s, like research papers. And those are just being forgotten, but apparently it's just being a treasure trove. I'm just like, whoa. It shows how inefficient academia is. Yes, yes. And so I do think they still have, you know, a part to play, but I'm looking forward to them playing a smaller part. Mm. I'm looking forward to a majority of the research being done, you know, in contexts where that research is, can 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 be used imminently like in spacex for example dude i love spacex i want to work there um and i'm also looking for like so i'm i'm happy that you know these big corporations are doing research um but i'm also looking forward to when you know like a lot of equipment is getting cheaper very fast a lot of scientific equipment so i'm looking forward to when like people can just you know scientists who don't necessarily belong to some big institution can just go off and do research on their own, you know, away from both, you know, big business and, um, you know, big academia. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, I think the problem here is that a lot of the research requires a lot of investment capital. Like, like the, a lot of the low hang fruits has been taken already. There's not many things that would wouldn't require too heavy of a you know capital but but you see the thing is right um once upon a time it used to be that the super wealthy would have patron scientists like they would pay they would patronize certain scientists 
and they're scientists just because they're purely out of interest purely out of interest it's like oh i'm interested in what this scientist is doing mm. i'm going to give them some money um because the marginal utility of the extra dollar almost zero right so a couple hundred thousand here a couple hundred thousand meaningless to these people or even millions and so i think we're reaching a stage where you know we're beginning to have many billionaires many billionaires um maybe in the future and not too far future we'll have trillionaires as well and so we're going to have a class of people who are able to patronize scientists Mm -hmm. um, or smaller organizations and give them the money that they need to carry out the research that they need to do i also think we're heading into a situation where you know it will be, it's, it's getting easier and easier to um, manufacture certain kinds of technology Okay, I completely agree with you. And I'm going to make a bold prediction. Elon Musk, first billionaire, a trillionaire in the world, and he's going to do this. Mark my words. Inshallah. <laughs> we'll see. He's I'm rooting, look, I'm rooting for him. I don't know if he's going to be the first trillionaire. I probably, if I had to put my money on someone, it'd probably be Bezos. No, I'm going for Elon Musk. Oh. All right, so we have a uh, rivalry here. Sure. I wouldn't put my money on Musk, but like, I'm still rooting for him, like in here, in my heart, <laughs> in my heart. but that's not where I put my money, but I hope he succeeds in everything he's trying to do. Um, I like the idea of going to space, colonizing Mars, that kind of thing. I like that. No, it's, it's not, it's not even SpaceX. I think, I think Tesla is just super underrated. I like Tesla. I like the idea. I like their cars i think they're beautiful just aesthetically pleasing yeah um, and you know um i also hope that he's able to make some profit from it one day <laughs> oh no he, he's gonna turn a profit like dude his, his margins are just ever growing mate yeah well look i'm rooting for him i'm rooting for him i hope he succeeds and i hope um he spawns a, a generation of you know uh ceos and visionaries like him well at, at least he's inspired me to be an engineer which is kind mm. of crazy like mm. in high school i would never thought of Have thought that you would be trying to be one yeah sure yeah um i think humanity's headed into an interesting spot and I'm, i know i'm pretty optimistic i'm pretty optimistic too i hate people that are pessimistic by the way <laughs> they grind my gears oh yeah same they just um they just don't really have perspective, I think. Tune in next Tuesday for our next podcast. Also, please leave a review on your podcast provider. Thank you.